Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Purest water made me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Hello brethren, God bless you We've been studying the wilderness. You know, what's the what's the advantage? You know, what what's the purpose? You know, um, we we discovered that the first fruits of God go out into the wilderness ahead of the the greater body of Christ, so to speak. And so we've been just discovering and examining what this wilderness could mean to us in our day. And one thing we have discovered is that it is a place of faith and weakness. It's a place where we live by faith, but are weak to be our own saviors, so to speak. In other words, it's a salvation that's not by works, but by faith in the Lord. And the righteous shall live from faith. Uh, when we learn to walk by faith, we are walking in the wilderness because our methods change from that of the world to, to those of God and of Jesus Christ. I'm going to start out today in um, Isaiah 43. Some years ago, when the Lord uh, started leading me in the wilderness, he, uh, he caused my Bible to open for uh, literally a couple of months. My Bible would open up to Isaiah 43. And um, just supernaturally. It, normally, it didn't do it before that, didn't do it after that. But the Lord just wanted me to get a point there. In Isaiah 43 and verse 14, Isaiah said, Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake have I sent to Babylon, and I will bring down all of them as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships of their rejoicing. This was a time when God was promising deliverance to his people who were in bondage in Babylon. Well, basically, folks, that's where God's people are. They're in bondage in Babylon. They're either got allegiances with the world, because the world is one form of Babylon, right? Uh, all nations came from Babel, and even their Babylonish religion was spread all over the earth, the false virgin birth, uh, Samarimus, Nimrod, so on and so forth. Uh, was spread all over the earth. And so God's people are very much in this day in bondage in two ways, secular Babylon and religious Babylon. And God is calling us out of their ways, their methods, their unbelief. What's acceptable to the world is not acceptable to God. Uh, he goes on in verse 15 to say, I am the Lord, your Holy One the creator of Israel, your king. Thus saith the Lord, who maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. Well, you know, God seems to be confusing um, Egypt, the Egyptian deliverance from the Babylonian deliverance here. But actually, they're both the same type, aren't they? So God's going to make a way in the sea. And he, as you know, the sea, uh, the Red Sea, or... 
baptism, as Paul called it in Corinthians. He called it a baptism unto death um, in the sea and a baptism uh, in the spirit in the cloud, you know. A baptism is for the death of the old man and the life of the new man, right? So God made a path through the waters for the spiritual man, the Israelite. He didn't make a path that lasted for the the Egyptian who was the carnal man in that case. The baptism, of course, is for the death of the old man and the life of the new man. Let me read on here. He says, Who bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the mighty man, they lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched like a wick. Well, you know, think about it. The Egyptian represented the old man who was not to follow Israel into their wilderness. Israel wasn't to live in bondage to the old man in the wilderness. They weren't to do things with the methods of Egypt in the wilderness. And this was a type and a shadow of what we need to be in the wilderness. Not ruled by the old man. Not given to his principles. Not walking in his methods, so to speak. So God says he brought down the the chariot and the horse. Now the chariot the horse in uh, Psalm 147 and verse 10 it says that God delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his loving kindness. So he, he likens the, the strength of the horse to the legs of a man. Meaning, of course, the beast, the old fleshly beast. Uh, God doesn't want us to strength, uh, to trust in the strength of the old man, the beast, right? A chariot is a, is a vessel that's, um, that's led by a beast. That's powered by a beast. And, uh, the old man, the old beastly life, that life that was led by the beast, had to die in the Red Sea so that the Israelite could go into the wilderness and learn to trust in God alone and not to lean on the arm of the flesh, so to speak. Let me read on here. Uh, verse 18. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. In other words, give up thinking of things when you come into Christ the way they were when you were in the world. God's going to do everything different from the way you did things when you were in the world. Now, I grant you, the church doesn't do that. The church is living in the world. It's of the world. It's very Babylonish, and they haven't escaped Babylon yet. But you see, the wilderness that's coming, the woman went into the wilderness, Revelation chapter 12. The wilderness that's coming is a place that God has prepared for the church, the very worldly church who's been living in Egypt in bondage to the old man, the Egyptians. Okay? Uh, verse 19, Behold, I will do a new thing. It's, it's new because now that you are a Christian, you are expected to live according to God's principles and to walk by faith. Now shall it spring forth. Shall you not know it? I'm afraid to say that's true, that an awful lot of Christians don't know it. I will even make a way in the wilderness 
and rivers in the desert. Wow, that's awesome. A way through the wilderness, rivers in the desert. And God even brought rivers out of rocks in the desert. That's awesome. God's provision is total, you know, for us who put our faith in him, right? Verse 20, the beasts of the field shall honor me and the jackals and the ostriches because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. Yeah, the beasts represent those lost people around us. You know, uh, Solomon said every man is as a beast, right? And you remember the beast that came down on the sheet in, in uh, Peter's vision in Acts, and um, God told him, um, rise and eat, Peter, and, and the Lord said, no, nothing unclean has ever entered my, my mouth, Lord. And he said, what I've made clean, don't you make unclean. Then he got the revelation that these unclean beasts were the Gentiles because he went to the Gentiles and preached the gospel and they received it. And he understood that this revelation represented them. So we're talking about lost people, the beasts of the field. The field, according to Jesus, is the world. Remember in his parables? The field is the world. You know what? The world trembled at God's people when they came out of Egypt. Remember what Rahab said about how that they heard the stories about God's miraculous deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and the, the Red Sea destruction of their enemies. They trembled before them. Uh, the people, when God's people become those people who live by faith in the wilderness, the world is going to tremble at them too. They're going to understand that these people have the favor of God. They are his chosen. And he goes on, verse 21, the people which I form for myself, that they may set forth my praise. Another verse I want to point out to you is in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 5, which is very applicable to what we're talking about. God didn't want the Israelite to live in the wilderness like Egyptians. He had to put to death the Egyptians and their beasts. And verse 5 says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed is the man that trusts in man, and that maketh the flesh his arm, whose heart departs from the Lord. You know, this is just another way of saying those people who believe in salvation by works, by man's works, by man's methods, instead of the salvation of the Lord that's freely given. Cursed is the man that trusts in man. Folks, that's where a lot of Egyptian Israelites are. A lot of God's people who call themselves Christians are actually have more affinity with Egypt and the world than they do with God in the wilderness. But God's going to put a stop to that because he's going to give drink to his chosen, not just his called, but his chosen. Many are going to die in the wilderness to come, but some are going to be Joshua's and Caleb's. Cursed is the man that trusts an arm in the arm of the flesh. Verse 6, For he shall be like a heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, a salt land and not inhabited. See, some people don't get to see the wonderful provision of God in a place where man cannot provide it. 
because they trust in the arm of the flesh. They're like a tumbleweed, a heath, a tumbleweed in the desert. Verse 7, Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord, and whose trust the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, that spreads out its roots by the river, and shall not fear when heat cometh, but its leaf shall be green. In other words, because he continues to take in the sun, right? Continues to walk by faith. And shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Those who walk by faith can go through a wilderness and have streams in the desert, waters in the desert, God's provision in the desert, because they don't trust the arm of the flesh. Uh, in verse 21, there's something I think is pretty applicable here, too. It says, For thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourselves, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden of your houses on the Sabbath day. Neither do ye any work. Well, the Sabbath day is, of course, the day we've entered into, the seventh day of the 7,000 years is the day we've just entered into, folks. And it's a day when we've got to cease from our works to do God's works. A curse came upon the people who continued to do their works on God's Sabbath. Well, we just entered into God's Sabbath. And a matter of fact, Jesus Christ is God's Sabbath. So, so whenever you've entered into Jesus Christ, you're supposed to cease from your works, whether it be the works of the law or the works of the flesh or the works of self-justification. See, God wants to be our Savior I'll tell you a little story. Almost 30 years ago, uh, God started giving me and my wife and even my children and the people around me uh, dreams and visions and uh, prophecies concerning a ministry that we were to have in Pensacola. And, of course, it's coming to pass day by day, but... Um, we had dreams. We knew it was going to come, I don't know, six or seven years before it actually started happening. And um, let me just share a couple of these with you because I, in my experience, I remember what I told you uh, last week was that God told me he was bringing me through a wilderness so I could tell his people that he still supplied there. A wilderness is a place where... There is no provision from man, no provision from Egypt or the world or our old fleshly man where God provides. And I want to tell you that you're very close to it. No matter where you are on planet Earth, you're very close to this wilderness. All you have to do is walk by faith in those promises. That's all you have to do because your provision will come supernaturally from God and not the way of the world, which is where most of the church is. They don't get the provision the miracles the signs and the wonders that god's people got in the wilderness and that they get today when they walk by faith we have to give up we have to be weak the old man cannot be we cannot be in bondage to the egyptian in the wilderness okay well we started getting these dreams about a ministry that god was going to raise up i remember uh one in particular we had a friend named ricky who um had a dream that he had gone away from us for a few years and hadn't seen us in a long time. And he came back into our neighborhood and, and ran into our neighbor. Um, 
uh, next door, and the neighbor pointed Ricky over towards our house, and he looked over there, and and here we were loading up um, a U-Haul van to move to Florida. Well, that was a strange dream, you know. And um, in the dream, uh, Ricky came over and helped us load up the van. Well, strange as it may seem, we hadn't seen Ricky. Just like his dream, we hadn't seen him in a couple of years. And suddenly he shows up, comes over to our neighbor's house, and um, our neighbor's name was Bruce. And Bruce said, Ricky, look over there. And he looked over, and sure enough, we had a, a U-Haul van backed up to the door, and we were loading it up. And Ricky very happily came over and helped us. You know, he was overjoyed that he had a dream that came precisely true, you know, a very literal dream that came precisely true. Another thing he saw was that I had some papers, and on the papers he said there was a, there was a word that he didn't remember. He said it started with a P, and I said to him, pension. <laughs> he said, yeah, that's the word. <laughs> well, it actually I told people for years that, that uh, Exxon, where I worked, was going to offer me an early uh, retirement and a pension. And uh, everybody told me I was crazy up until the time it happened, which is, is that time when Ricky showed up. Actually, they'd give it, it, it was a, a severance pay. I, I didn't, don't get anything till I'm, I don't know, 60 or something like that, I think. But um, I'm not quite there yet, folks. And I don't even know if Exxon will be around that long. But at, at any rate, um, I got a year severance, and it was handy to help me move. So so this was uh, the kind of thing that prepared us for this, is dreams like this that I knew were true. My, another one was my wife had a dream that uh, we were moving to Florida and that there was just one road going to Florida. It was one solid road going forward. You know, this was really strange because in the time she had this dream, the interstate was broken in many places between where we live now and where we lived in Baton Rouge. The interstate was broken. We knew that when we moved, the interstate would be finished. Now, believe you me, everybody along the Gulf Coast was waiting for years for that interstate to finish. And everybody that lives down here knows what I'm talking about. They they wondered, now, what are they doing? Why are they dragging their feet? Why don't they go ahead and finish that thing? Well, it was finished just before we moved over here to Pensacola. And another dream that my wife had, she saw us walking through a house over here in Pensacola with... um. Uh, with a, a new baby. In fact, it was a, actually, she was walking through the house with the baby on her hip. It was a hip-sized baby girl, old enough to, to be held on the hip, okay? So, actually, when our baby girl that God had prophesied to us, my wife was waking up one day, and, and she had had a dream. She saw a big boy and a little girl, and she was waking up, and the Lord said, Justin Joseph and Jennifer Joy. All with J's, you know. And sure enough, we thought we were going to have twins, but sure enough, she, uh, uh, Justin Joseph was born. And I told her, no, it was a big boy because the boy came first. It was a little girl because the little girl came next or last. And um, so she, I finally convinced her of that. The Lord gave her, um, uh, let's see, one. Uh, it was uh, 12 heads in a row is what finally convinced her that this was Justin Joseph. So when Jennifer Joy was born, we knew it was getting close to the time that we were to be moving over here to uh, Pensacola. 
And uh, when she was getting close to hip size, we knew everything was falling into place. Somehow or another, we knew it was going to happen. And my wife came to me and she said, well, David, it's almost time. Um, you think we ought to start saving our money? <laughs> I said, no, I don't. I think we're going to continue to do what the Bible tells us to do and not store up on earth, but but um, instead just keep giving. Because obviously there's an awesome promises in the Bible for giving, folks. I mean, uh, uh, Luke chapter 6 and verse 38, give, and it will be given unto you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. Since we didn't have any money, we definitely needed that kind of a blessing to come over here and buy a house and not be in debt because, you see, we didn't believe in debt. I hadn't been in debt since I'd come to the Lord, and the Lord showed me that it wasn't right to be in debt. So I, I didn't. I never got in debt, and I got to see miracles. I think I shared that with you last time, so I'm not going to regress here. But um, not not going into debt for the last 30-something years has taught me that God will do miracles for people who put their trust in Him and obey their conscience. You know, the Bible says, Owe no man anything but love. And the borrower is servant to the lender. And they shall lend, but they shall not borrow. So I stayed away from debt because I felt like God had made me a promise. And she said, Are we going to save the money so we can move over there and buy a house? And I said, Nope, we're just going to keep on a giving. And later on, the, the thought came to me, Well, Lord, do you want me to sell my house? And the Lord said, no, I want you to give the house away. You know what, folks? This is how we get miraculous provision from God. Give. It's not storing up that you get miraculous provision. It's giving that you get miraculous provision because God will multiply it to you many times. That's better than storing up. There's no multiplication there, right? But um, if you give to the needs that God points out around you, God will give to you. He will give to you freely as you give freely to others. You want to get prepared for a coming wilderness? Learn to give freely. So anyway, he told me who who we were going to give the house to. We were going to give it to a, a couple that we knew from years back that we hadn't had any fellowship with in some time, didn't even know where they were, did a little research to find out where they were. Literally, the Lord told me I was going to give my house to this to this couple, and uh, then we found out that they, that they lived in Houston, and that there was a big oil bust in Houston. The, the oil business went flat over there, and I, when I called this couple, I've come to find out they had a company house, um, and uh, it was all paid for by their company, but when they lost their job over there, they lost their house, and uh, they and they had a company car, too, and they lost the company car. So now they just had their little car that they did have and basically no place to go and nothing nothing to do. So God had prepared for them what uh, a place to live. Okay, so when I contacted them, I told them, I says, well, they told me their situation. I said, well, hey, you come live with us. And because I already knew what the Lord had told me that I was to give it to them. But I said, you come live with us and we'll see how the Lord works this out. So they did. They came and moved in with us. And um make a long story short, um, one day um, we were taking them out to eat. And uh, what the Lord had told me, he reminded me of a dream that this, this sister had years before. 
She said she'd been out away from this area for a long time, and she came back, and somebody else was living in our house. And I never thought about it at the time. I thought, well, they didn't know, but just somebody, somebody was living there. But suddenly it came into my mind that she knew who it was that was living in our house. And so we were driving along and um, down the road, and I, I said, um, Karen, that was her name. I said, Karen, uh, remember that dream you had years ago about coming back to town and somebody else was living in your house, in our house? She said, yeah. I said, that someone was you, wasn't it? And she looked at me and says, yeah. She didn't want to make a, a self-fulfilled prophecy, so she didn't obviously tell me up front, you know. And I understood that. I understand that's the way of faith, you know. And I said, well, it was you, wasn't it? She says, yeah. And I said, well, okay, then the house is yours. And, of course, they both looked at me really strange, you know. I says, yeah, I mean it. The house is yours. The Lord told me to give it to you. So here these, this couple were were out of everything, you know, wondering where in the world they were going to live and so on and so forth, and God had prepared a place for them. They were a couple of faith, too. They had faith in the Lord. And... um I tell you, it's just awesome how God provided for them, and He provided for us. You know, at the time I was I was working for Exxon, and um, we actually had a had a church out there at Exxon. It was a, a fantastic church. I mean, we had people from all different religions, and um, they were coming together at the at the lunch break to share the word and to uh, pray for the sick, and we had all kinds of miracles and wondrous things happened. It was just awesome. But one day when it was getting time for us to move over to Florida here, and at the same time, Exxon did offer early retirement to company people just exactly like I had been telling all my friends there for six or seven years. He did offer early retirement. And um, and I knew I was going to take it already because God had prepared me. And all these people came to me and said, well, you said this was going to happen, you know. And I said, yeah, because the Lord told me. And um, and also uh, Ricky's dream about the, the uh, pension, you see. So it was a good witness to especially the pagans around me because I told them it was coming and it did come. They wanted to get in uh, contract labor instead of company employees, which were more expensive to them with benefits and all these things, you see. So, so anyway, um, I took their early retirement, and they were sending me a lump sum. And at the same time, this is what happened. I agreed with our assembly there that God was going to give me a house, since I hadn't saved any money. Uh, God was going to give me a house and give me a car, because my car was kind of uh, in that situation where we, we were needing another one, in Florida. I agreed in faith, according to Matthew 18 and 19. You know the Bible says, if, if any two of you agree as touching anything, it shall be done by our Father in heaven. And we agreed in faith that God would do this. Now, I knew that these people weren't in any position to provide me for that, and I wouldn't have accepted it from them anyway. That's why I agreed with them. You don't agree with people that can, you know, as a matter of graft, you know, to, to force them to have pity on you and give to you. Didn't accept any money from anybody there. But we agreed for this one week, and let me tell you, one week later from the time we agreed on that, one week later, my wife was driving down 
Ford Boulevard in Baton Rouge. And it was at Christmas time. And actually there was a vehicle in front of her. It was a, a big Cadillac. And she was in a Toyota. My wife and my daughter were in this Toyota. The Cadillac was coming to a stop behind some other people, and my wife was stopping. And then there was a man behind her in a big Lincoln that evidently was window shopping and uh, didn't see him and slammed into my wife and slammed her into the Cadillac in front. Well, you get a Toyota between a Cadillac and a Lincoln, you ain't got much of a Toyota left, you know? So, so basically, my wife was slightly injured and my daughter was slightly injured, nothing that the Lord couldn't take care of. And, um, the man, they actually had to get the jaws of life and pry the car open to get them out of the car, you know, because it was just totally crumpled. Well, the man behind her in the Lincoln, he, he runs up alongside of my wife and he looks in the window and he says, listen, don't worry about a thing. I'm going to take care of everything. <laughs> well, to make a long story short, um, this man was, was the president of a big warehouse corporation there in Baton Rouge and, uh, his, uh, corporation was self-insured. They made that much money, and he had something like 100, 300, and 100 uh, insurance on his vehicle, you know, way above the norm. And uh, the man was very repentant. And I don't even think the man was a Christian, but he was very, very sorry for what he had done. And um, and so he kept contacting us over the time, over a short period of time. He kept contacting us. He said, look, he says, um, um, we're self-insured. He says, it's nothing to worry about. I'll talk to the people. It will be taken care of. You will be taken care of. You know, can you imagine running into, or having somebody like that run into you a week after you've agreed for enough money to buy a house and to uh, buy a car? Well, to make a long story short, they very quickly replaced our Toyota with a better, newer one, and um, they put the wheels in progress to give us a, a lump sum to uh, take care of my wife and daughter and to, you know, for any for any pain and grief that we went through. And um, lo and behold, it was astounding because the money came in from that. Now, we didn't sue anybody. We weren't planning to sue anybody, and we don't do that anyway. We don't believe in that. We believe in turning the other cheek and resisting not the evil and um, not doing such things. But anyway... The um, the money came in from that at the same time, or at least the first installment, which was pretty big, came in from that. At the same time, the money came in from Exxon, the the, um, the year's severance pay, at the exact same time. The money came in at the exact same time. Like God had planned the whole thing, which, of course, he had. <laughs> he had planned the whole thing. And uh, so anyway, we... We knew it was time. We came over. We started. Actually, we came over a little bit early. You know how sometimes the Lord waits to see if you're going to get out there in the flesh before sometimes he answers. So we came over a little early. We started looking around. We were kind of curious, you know, and we didn't see anything. We went back home. We started crying out to the Lord. Okay, Lord, we know this is the time. We know, you know, it's coming and so on and so forth. And so we, we waited and the Lord sent us the next time. And we had a uh, we had a Christian realtor over here in Pensacola looking around for us, 
In fact, we described the house to him because we'd already seen it in dreams and visions and things. I'd seen the house under these great big oak trees, which is where we are right now, these big monster oak. And um, so we tried to describe it to this man, and he was just looking all over Pensacola, you know. And finally one day, in a little bit of frustration after having sought the Lord, I uh, stopped the man and I said, look, let's let's get your map out. So we got his, his map out. We stretched it out on the hood of his car. And I said, listen, this is where the house is right here. And I wasn't even looking where I was pointing, folks, but I stuck my finger down on this map. And he, and he looked at where my finger was. He said, okay, we'll go there and look. <laughs> well, I said, this is where the house is right here. And uh, as we were looking, I told the man just exactly how much we were going to pay for the house. He said, okay. He wasn't used to this. But um, he, he drove us through this area right here where we are, where we bought. And we passed by right after the lady of this house went out and stuck the sign in the ground. Literally, for sale by owner. And since this was a realtor... And it was a for sale by owner. He was just driving right on by. But I had my pad and pencil out, and I wrote down the phone number. And um, uh, I want to tell you that the man had done a good job looking for the house and all that, and he was a good a Christian man and so on. And, and we actually gave him his commission. You know, even though we, we paid for the house, it was for sale by owner, we just gave him his commission because he was a good Christian man, and he, he worked for his... Uh, is due, and we figured we'd give it to him anyway. You know, he told us. He said, "Man, I could have never found you a deal like this." You know, um, we, I knew what I was going to pay for the house. It was a strange situation. I told the lady, I said, "Look, I, I knew what I was going to pay, but I offered her a thousand less because some people like to haggle. That's what I felt to do. I offered her a thousand less, and she says, "Well, I don't know. I, you know, I." And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I see, leave the curtains, which I knew she was planning on doing anyway. So you leave the curtains, and I'll give you this much, which is the amount the Lord told me. And she said, okay. <laughs> you know, so I said, well, praise the Lord, you know. So, you know, this lady had been witness to uh, one of her relatives runs uh, or is the pastor of a, a large uh, full gospel church here in town. And he had been witnessing to her, and a lot of people had. She was a Baptist lady. And uh, when we came here, um, she had a problem with her eyes. And um, so we just asked her, I said, will you let us pray for you? Will you let us uh, lay hands on you and pray for you for those eyes so God will heal them? And I pointed out some verses to her and so on and so forth. And she said, well, I don't know so much about that laying on of hands stuff. I said, but it's... She said, but uh, I would like you to pray for me. I said, okay, we'll pray for you without the laying on of hands. <laughs> so so we prayed for her, and God healed her. And uh, she was just jubilant, you know, that to come to find out that God would do this for her, you know. I mean, obviously her doctrine didn't really permit that kind of a, a miraculous healing. She didn't really believe in those kinds of miraculous healings. But... Um, but she got a miraculous healing, and she, her eyes got suddenly open to the full gospel. 
the thing was that um, we weren't we we had to move in and she wasn't ready to move out for another week so she lived with us for a week so we got to share with her you know about this and um, we had all, our stuff all piled up on one end of the house and we were kind of living together like that so on and so forth and we got to witness to her and uh, and so finally we had the house to ourselves but you see God did a miracle it was through weakness that we got this miracle God paid for it we didn't pay for anything the money he gave us was enough to buy the house and to buy a new car because um, um, our, our small car was a Toyota and it was good for doing small jobs and stuff but we had five kids <laughs> so we bought a brand new large station wagon which which God did many miracles on that station wagon for us, you know, over the years. But the miracle was that God paid for both of these. We didn't have any money. We didn't save any money. We continued to give all of our life to any need that came our way. Whenever we saw a need, we gave to it. We didn't believe in storing up our treasures on earth. So we saved up no money in the bank. We did what Luke 12 says, which is... Uh, Give alms, make for yourselves purses which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, faileth not. You see, when you store up your treasures in heaven by meeting the needs of the brethren, you can always get it back. It faileth not. I tell you, we did that for many years. Many years, I had a, I made a very good living, and I met the needs of the brethren around me whenever I saw a need. I would take care of it. By the grace of God, he put that in my heart. I read the word day and night, and, you know, the word gets in your heart, folks. You read the word of God, and, and you love the word of God, and you love to act and live on the word of God, it'll get into you. And it won't be a burden to do things. It'll just come natural to you, because that's Jesus in you. The word in you is Jesus in you, you see. And so we just gave to everything we saw. We didn't save up any money. We didn't borrow any money. That was out of the question for us who walked by faith was to borrow money. And even today, you know, we haven't, I haven't in over 30 years borrowed any money. But you know what? Because I give, the money's always there when I need it. It didn't matter if I needed to buy a car or what I needed to buy. If I needed to buy a house for someone else, I bought, um, I think, three trailers for homeless people since I've been here in uh, Pensacola. And if I needed the money, God would send it. And uh, as I told you uh, last time, the Lord taught me uh, never to borrow, never to tell my needs, never to take any government help, don't go, don't go into business buying and selling. One of the things Ricky in his dream said, I told him when I walked when he walked up to me, Literally, I, I told him, I said, I'm never going to work for man again. And it was true. I, I worked for Exxon, but um, when I retired from there, I never worked for man again. Uh, everybody has to work. The Bible says if man don't work, you don't eat. So I have worked diligently for the Lord and still do. But um, I've never been a burden on people. I made sure of that and never made my needs known. But God, you know, put it in people's hearts to to uh, meet our needs when uh, we were working for him, okay? I don't believe in mooching. <laughs> we used to, we've always called it down south, mooching, okay? I don't believe in that. It's wrong. It's evil. And if you're walking by faith, God's going to support you. 
and and uh, he supports those who work for him. You know, I was like the Apostle Paul in a way because in First Corinthians, Apostle Paul um, worked for a living while he ministered, and it was that way for the first part of my ministry. I worked for many years while I ministered, but by Second Corinthians came around, it seemed very clear that Paul was receiving free will offerings from brethren so that he could continue on with his ministering and not be distracted by any work. So so basically, um, basically I learned to walk by faith, and in that weakness, God was miraculous. I tell you, people don't get to see the miracles of God because they're not weak. They're always strong to go and do for themselves. It's kind of salvation by works. I think I pointed out here a week or two ago that um, the salvation is used in the Bible many different ways. The verb is sozo, and um, soteria, salvation, is the noun. And sozo is used all through the Bible for all kinds of being saved. You know, for instance, uh, when Jesus healed the sick, it said they were made whole. The word there is sozo. When he healed the sick. You know, when he delivered people from demons, they were sozoed. Uh, when the disciples were in the boat and the boat was sinking, they said, sozo, Lord, <laughs> save us, Lord. See, salvation is very, very big, folks. Jesus saved us from sin and its curse. Sin and its curse. And uh, did you know in the, in the scriptures, poverty is a curse? Unless it's a sacrificial, self-imposed poverty for the sake of others, it's a curse. How many of you know that Jesus wasn't uh, poverty-stricken? He had his me- needs met everywhere he went. Now, he didn't have riches the way the world likes riches, so you can trust in your riches and so that you can love the things of the world. He didn't have that. But he had his needs met wherever he went, and so did his disciples. They weren't poor. But they were poor to the world. But the Bible says, didn't God choose the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? You know why? People that are poor to the world, they can trust in God. They're rich in faith because they know God will meet their needs. And I don't care if it's a house or a car or whatever you need. If you will obey God's principles there and get out from under the world and the worldly teachings of the Babylonish church and begin to obey the principles that Jesus gave us in the New Testament, especially given to your brothers in need when you see a need, then God will make sure that you don't ever have a need. Did you hear what I said? You make sure your brother's needs are met, you know, sacrificially out of what you have, and God will make sure that you don't ever have a need. He will meet your need. He will provide your every need according to his riches and glory. And uh, Paul said that because his needs have been met by these people, and he made that promise to them in the Lord. Well, anyway, in our weakness, I mean, we'd even lost a car, been injured, didn't have any money, In our weakness, God was made strong. And we didn't have to sell or borrow or beg or do anything of the sort. Just all all we did was give. And I'm not preaching this so that you give to me, because I don't really care if you give to me. 
honestly, I'm telling you the truth. I, you, this, I know it doesn't sound like a preacher over here, does it? Okay? But I don't really care if you give to me or not. I'm, I'm telling you, I don't trust in what men can give to me. I trust in what God can give to me. The reason we're on this broadcast is because God gave to me. And he'll continue to do it as long as he wants this broadcast on. So I'm not saying this to you to make you feel sorry for me or give to me. I want you to walk in the blessings that I have walked in. And God will do that for you if you start living according to his principles that are written in that word instead of Babylon's ideas. And you know, uh, the second part of that money that came in from the wreck, it kind of delayed and it delayed. And you know what happened? God made an opportunity for me to give my station wagon away. The first one, the one that I had when I was in Baton Rouge, to give it away. I gave it away to a a mission that was here in town that I'd preached in quite a few times. And um, they needed some way to haul around the, the people in the mission. And one of the amazing things about that car is God blessed me with that car. I never had any problems with that car. We prayed for a car. My my youngest daughter had a vision of this car in New Orleans and um, saw the color of the car and everything. And, I, and sure enough, I couldn't find anything in Baton Rouge that I liked, and I went to New Orleans and saw the car and, and bought it. And God blessed me with that car, and I gave it to this, this minister, you know, and, and literally... I've never put any spares in that car because I was trusting God to keep my tires. And the day I put the keys in the preacher's hand in my living room here, we walked outside and had a flat. I never had a flat as long as I had that car because I never had a spare. But as soon as it got out of my hand and into his, we had a flat. You know, I was just thinking, I, I mentioned uh, New Orleans there. Think about what happened there, folks. Just think about what happened. I mean, God brought a Category 5 hurricane up to that big sin city. And I'm not saying anything that hadn't happened to Pensacola over here, folks. We had Ivan over here, and it uh, destroyed a lot of this city. It didn't get me, but it destroyed a lot of this city. So I'm not saying anything. I mean, this is also a sin city. But anyway, he brought that hurricane up to that big sin city. A Category 5, he, just as it was about to hit land, he sent in a, um, a wave of dry air from the northwest that suddenly knocked that hurricane down to a Category 3. And that same gust of um, dry air pushed the hurricane to the east. You know, a Category 5, where that thing was about to hit, would have driven the waters of Lake Pontchartrain over into the city and drowned, you know, 40,000, 50,000 people because the water would have come in there so fast. Think about man's efforts to save themselves, that levee. Think about those great big monster pumps that they have in that city to pump that city out. They thought they could keep that city dry. Had a Category 5 hit that city, or even a Category 3 would have hit it head-on and not moved a little bit, it would have pumped the water over in there so fast. See, most of New Orleans is 20 foot below sea level. Some of it's more than 20 foot below sea level. And the water 
of a shallow lake like Pontchartrain would have been pushed right over in there on what chance did man have to save himself from one, just one, of God's natural things like a hurricane? You know, as it was, he didn't let the city escape. Even after moving the hurricane over a little bit, the levees got saturated and gave out, and the city started filling up with water. So, the, but it was slower. It's like was like an hour, uh, a foot an hour, or something like that, giving people time, you know, to to move out of the way and so on. Except for the very lowest part of the city, obviously, but they weren't. They didn't get out quick enough, but but uh, that was astounding. The mercy of God saved those people. I mean, the meteorologists who looked, and I—I I mean, they—they uh, they pointed it out on radar and everything that happened there. How this 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 gust of dry air came in there and moved it, and they were amazed at it. They were totally amazed at it. They'd never seen anything like that, and I hadn't either. That was an act of God that spared them. They couldn't have saved themselves. Even with all of their efforts, all of these years, the city of New Orleans has lived um, below sea level, right there on the sea with their levees, and all the time they knew that if a major hurricane hit them, that city was going to be drowned. And so God didn't spare the city, but he spared an awful lot of people. Now, they're going to find thousands of people dead there. But I can tell you there's a lot of brethren there too that have been spared just like brethren here in Pensacola were spared Ivan when they prayed to the Lord and trusted in the Lord they were spared many many people spared over here got good testimonies wonderful testimonies because of the power of God and because of their faith now I tell you there were some people with faith there in New Orleans that were no doubt praying to God at the last moment when that hurricane suddenly dropped down and suddenly moved over did you know we just had a hurricane did exactly that here in Pensacola? Hurricane Dennis. And you know, I was praying the whole time. I was saying, Lord, do you want me to command that hurricane to, to back off and go the other way? And the Lord said, nope, just, just wait, just wait, just wait. And I didn't do anything. You know, the Lord in the past has, has in some cases done that with us, but I didn't do anything. And all of a sudden, when it hit the land, the Lord, I felt in my heart that the Lord wanted me to to command it to be broken up. And you know what? That's when it started breaking up right there. It, uh, it suddenly dropped down. The strength dropped down. It started breaking up. And it, it veered a little bit to the right of uh, Pensacola. And that's, I know that there were some people over there in New Orleans that were doing the exact same thing, and God answered the exact same way. Now, Bill, he was over there in the east, so he didn't, it, it caught, he's over there laughing. But, uh, the thing was that I sent that hurricane right over there towards him. <laughs> no, no, God has it all planned out. He just uses our faith to bring it to pass. But we can put our trust in the living God, and nothing that man can do will save you in the things that are coming, folks. The wilderness is where you learn to walk by faith in the Lord. You learn to put your faith in Him, and you give up your efforts and your power and your ability to do anything. Obviously, the, the promises of God are past tense, friends. He, he became a curse for you. He bore your curse. He healed your body. I've got a lot more miracles I'm going to share with you 
in the next uh, couple of weeks probably. But he already did all this. They're all past tense. And since all these promises are past tense and, and he taught us that when you pray, believe you have received, if you believe you have received, what can you do to bring something to pass? Nothing. See, the promises make us weak. The promises, if we really do believe them, they bring us into a position of weakness where we can't save ourselves. Now, you hear the old saying, God helps them that helps themselves. Well, that's a lie. The power of God is made perfect in weakness. That's what he told Paul. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul couldn't save himself in those situations that he got into. But he said, out of them all, the Lord delivered me. In his weakness, God's power was made perfect. I want to say, keep the Sabbath, folks. Don't bring a burden into God's holy city on this Sabbath. Cease from your own works, in other words. Cease from the works of man. Like God told Moses and the children of Israel, stand as still and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand still. They were all trying to figure out what to do. Here's Pharaoh's army coming up behind them. They'd have never thought about parting the Red Sea. They never would have thought about that. See, God's got ways far beyond our ways. They would have never thought about that. That's why he had to tell them, you stand still. After they stood still, it's the same for us, folks. We, sometimes we're just so so busy running around trying to figure out a way out of this. We've been trained that way from our youth to solve our problems for ourselves, you know. And God wants us to be believers in these promises. Get your Bible out. Go diligently read it. Underline these promises, learn these promises, and start acting on them. Faith without works is dead. Start acting on it. If, you, if Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty four, all things you pray and ask for, believe you received, past tense, literally, them, and you shall have them, how would you act if you believed you had received what you prayed for? How would you act? Well, I'll tell you how you'd act. You'd quit trying to bring it to pass for yourself. You'd cease from your own labors. And if you cease from your own labors on his Sabbath, you will find God's power is made perfect. Hello, saints. Good to be back with you again. Let's go to the Lord. Oh, Father, we just thank you so much for your word, Lord. The word that sets us free. That gives us the authority and the power from your Holy Spirit to rid your people of sicknesses and diseases and things like that, Lord. That we can do it ourselves. We don't need man to, to pray for us. We can do it ourselves. Your word is clear on that. And I thank you, Lord, that today, with your anointing and your blessings, Lord, that we'll get across to people about healing faith for ourselves. 
Thank you, Lord, for being with us today to get this message out. And I praise you, Father, for all that you're going to accomplish through your people out there. In Jesus' name. Well, all right. That's what I want to talk about is healing faith for ourselves. You know, we need to learn to rightly divide the Word of God on, on all subjects. Because when we look at prayer, it's 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 real important to recognize there are different kinds of prayer, and one kind of praying is not going to work where another kind of prayer should. So it's necessary to find out what kind of prayer will work in each situation. Well, when you study the subject of healing, you begin to see that there are two two kinds of methods of healing found in the scriptures. James chapter five. 14 and 16 says, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save him that is sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, it shall be forgiven him. Confess, therefore, your sins one to another, and pray one for another, that you may be healed. The supplication of a righteous man availeth much in its working. And then Mark chapter 5, verses 25 through 30, and then verse 34. And a woman who had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. Having heard the thing concerning Jesus, came in the crowd behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch but his garments, I shall be made whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her plague. And straightway Jesus, perceiving in himself, that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned him about in the crowd and said, in the crowd and said, Who touched my garbage? And then verse 34. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now in these, in these scriptures, we can see those two streams of healing. One is prayer and the other is being ministered to under the anointing. Both are going to bring you the same results. But what we need to understand is that there's a difference between the two. Now, we know it's thoroughly scriptural to pray for the sick because Mark eleven twenty four says, All things whatsoever you pray and ask for, believe that you received them and you shall have them. Now, that include healing, wouldn't it? Otherwise, the scripture would have said this, all things whatsoever you pray and ask for, except healing. <laughs> no, that's not what it said. It said, Mark 11, 23 and 24 includes all things whatsoever you pray, as long as they're in line with God's word. Now, God might use some other passage of scripture to lead you. So you just can't lay down some kind of a pattern and say that's the way it's going to work with everybody. You can be healed through prayer because prayer is one stream of healing that's available to all of us. And on the other hand, you might not be in a position to pray. Your faith may not be at that level yet, or perhaps you haven't been taught along those lines. But then the scripture also says, is any sick among you? 
let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And the prayer of faith shall save him that is sick and the Lord shall raise him up. It says that in James chapter 5. Now I want to point out three things here that will be a blessing to you. First, the very fact that James asked the question, is any sick among you? That implies that there shouldn't have been any sick among them, right? Second, it proves that healing is for everyone. He didn't say, let them call for the elders of the church and those whom it's God's will to heal will be healed. And those whom it's not God's will to be healed won't be healed. No. He said, is any sick among you? So that tells us healing must be for any who are sick among us. Then we also see that that's the prayer of faith that saves the sick, right? That same Greek word sozo translated savior is also translated heal. In other words, you could read it this way. The prayer of faith shall heal the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. Now, a person can pray in faith and receive healing for himself. Now, a person can also call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, it says in James 5 again. James 5.16 goes on to say that believers can pray for one another that they may be healed because the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working, as the amplified way of saying it. As Christians, we need to get this revelation down on the inside of us. The Bible says that our effectual, fervent prayers can cause God's healing power to be manifested. And the other method or stream of healing mentioned is being ministered to with a tangible anointing in Mark chapter 5 and verse 30. In other words, you don't have to pray for God's healing power because it's already present to minister to people. This is the stream of healing power that Jesus flowed in when he was here on earth. Jesus never had to specifically pray for the sick because he was already anointed to minister healing to them. It said in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's thoroughly scriptural to pray for the sick and the scriptures instruct you to do so. But you see, there was no need for Jesus to pray for something that he already had. And that was the healing anointing. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 12, He that believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do. Well, if we're going to do the works of Jesus in any kind of a measure, then it has to be with the same anointing, right? So we should learn something about how the anointing works. And Jesus used many methods of ministering healing. But the most prominent one seems to be the laying on of hands. And you might say it was a point of contact through which the anointing could be transferred or flowed through. And also in connection with the laying on of hands, the Bible mentions two different times when people touched Jesus' clothes and they were healed. Matthew fourteen thirty-five and 36. And when the men of that place knew him, 
they sent into all that region round about and brought unto him all that were sick. And they besought him that they might only touch the border of his garment. And as many as touched were made whole. In Mark 5 and 30, straightway Jesus perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned him about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now, as we see in Mark 5 and 30, when the woman with the issue of blood touched Jesus' garment, Jesus perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned about, turned him about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Well, what was the power that went out of Jesus? It was the healing power. It was the power with which he was anointed. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Even Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, devil for God was with him. Now, we know that Jesus works the same today because of what Hebrews chapter 13 and 8 says, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, if in his physical body, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Ghost to heal and to do good yesterday, then he's going to do the same thing today through his body. And that's us, the church. Therefore, he's still healing people by the anointing or power of the Holy Spirit. Where did Jesus' power come from? Well, God anointed him with it. And somebody might say, but Jesus is the Son of God. He was God manifested in the flesh. Yeah, that's exactly right. But the Word of God tells us that when Jesus came into this world, he laid aside the use of his mighty power and glory. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. And here's what the Amplified Bible said, that he stripped himself of all privileges and rightful dignity so as to assume the guise of a servant, a slave, in that he became like men and was born a human being. Now think about that for a moment. At age 21, Jesus didn't heal anybody. He didn't work any miracles. Yet he was just as much the son of God then as he was when he was 30 years old. But the word tells us that the son of God laid aside the use of his mighty power and glory, didn't it? Now, it was only after the Holy Ghost descended upon Jesus and he was anointed that he began to minister in the power of the spirit. It tells us that in Luke chapter 4, 1 through 14. No miracles of healing took place until he was anointed, folks. So you see, it's the anointing of the Holy Spirit that brings the power. And this stream or method of healing, healing ministered by the anointing of the power of the Holy Spirit, is still available today for all of us. Now, there's something you need to understand about this stream, this stream through which the healing anointing is ministered. There is a role that you play as a receiver. You see, even though God has anointed people to minister healing to the sick, folks have to understand that healing is by degree. Therefore, it's based upon two conditions. The degree of healing power administered 
and the degree of a person's faith to receive. When healing is ministered with a tangible anointing, the power of God is present to heal. But the person has a part to play too. It's the person's faith that gives action to the healing power of God that's transmitted to him. Now remember, Jesus said to the woman with the issue of blood, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. And somebody might say, I thought it was the anointing that healed her. Well, yeah, it was. But it was the woman's faith that gave the healing anointing action. Well, thank God there are several methods of healing available to us. Because God desires for us to be whole and well, doesn't he? Prayer and the ministering of the tangible healing anointing are two of them. And with proper understanding, we can learn to flow with the Spirit of God in these two streams. Then we can use our faith to give action to God's healing power in our lives. But the main thing God wants us to know is that he wants us to well, and he wants us free from this bondage of sickness. There are some out there that say the number one hindrance to receiving healing, the number one enemy to healing is not knowing that it's God's will to heal. And that's usually the issue you have to deal with in order for people to be healed. You have to get them to see that it is God's will to heal them. And also, I understand that there's a group of people that don't believe that healing is for us today at all. In fact, they're sure it's not God's will to heal. Then there's another group who believe in healing, but they are certain that God won't heal them. They think they've been too evil. They've been too mean or unworthy. Now, the devil's always going to bring up something like that, won't he? But we have to, we, we must not be found in any of those uh, uh, categories. We must get in the Bible class and find out what the Word of God teaches about divine healing. Because the only hindrance to healing is to believe that there is a hindrance to healing. And as I said, the main obstacle is getting people to believe that it's God's will to heal, that he wants to heal, that they should be healed because it is his will. Praise God. Now, let me share with you a scriptural reason why it's God's will to heal you. God promised to grant the things you ask for in prayer. When you pray, believing that you have received, let's see, let's see what Jesus said about that in Mark 11, 23 and 24. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou taken up and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that what he says comes to pass, he shall have it. Therefore I say unto you, all things whatsoever ye pray and ask for, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. By the way, that word receive is past tense in the original Greek. People who don't accept the Bible say Mark eleven twenty four is not for everybody. I heard a minister say one time, well, now Mark eleven twenty four won't work for everyone. Well, how come? You should respond to that argument with the question, is prayer for everybody? Or is it that some are supposed to pray and others are not? You see, the subject in Mark 11 is prayer. It's not simply gaining the desire of your heart. Jesus tells you how to get all things whatsoever you pray and ask for through prayer, doesn't he? 
Yeah, he does. How many should pray then? Everybody. Well, if everyone should pray, then I would think that the verse belongs to everybody, don't it? Because prayer belongs to everybody. Now, let's look at verse 24 again. Therefore, I say unto you, all things whatsoever you pray and ask for, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. That's talking about the things that you desire. For now, let's just consider one desire, healing for your body, okay? And insert it into this verse. And here's the way it should read. When you pray, believe that you received healing. But there ain't no physical change yet, people might argue. Well, I know it. Jesus said, and you shall have it. But first, you have to believe that you received healing. But I'm not healed. Well, people who say this have already missed it. They're going by their heads instead of their hearts. Because when you pray, you have to believe that you have received healing, and then you will have healing. When are you going to have healing? After you believe you received it. When do you believe you receive him? Before you have it. Well, that don't make no sense. Somebody might complain. That's not even common sense. Well, I know it's not. It's way above common sense. How many of you ever read Isaiah 55, 9? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This kind of thinking is as high above common sense as the heavens are above the earth. And if we walk by faith and somebody is critical of you, don't feel embarrassed. The problem is that they can't see what you see because God's word is so far above their sight. That faith business, I don't believe in that. And people who say this are confessing that they're not saved because here's what the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, don't it say that? Yeah, it does. When you pray, believe that you received healing and you'll have healing. Now, the Bible states that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. So let's turn to Matthew 21 and see what Jesus said about believing. Matthew 21, 22, and all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. How many things will you receive? All things except one? Nope. All things except healing? Nope. All things. If this promise didn't include healing, then it would read all things except one, right? Now, what if Jesus has said, and all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, you shall receive? then we'd automatically have him made it. Why did Jesus put that one little word, believing in that? Because the promise won't work without it. You have to believe, believing, 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 folks. Some say that's, that's, that could be my trouble. I don't have any faith. Well, why don't you get saved then? Because saved people have faith. That's who we are, saved people, believers. And once you're a born-again believer, all the promises in the Bible belong to you. And why don't you just say this out loud? I am a believer. Well, it ought not to be hard for you to believe then, should he? Start believing that healing is God's will for you. Now, a key verse 
In this study of why it's God's will to heal is a familiar one that's found in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Even Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. And some people might say, I don't know whether it's the will of God to heal me or not. Well, Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 38, For I am come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. What did Jesus do here on earth? Well, we read in Acts chapter 10 verse 38 that he went about doing good and healing. And since that's so, then doing good and healing have to be the will of God, right? People sometimes get confused about the character of God because they believe something other than what the Bible says about him. But if you want to see God in action, take a look at Jesus. Jesus said this. He said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. In John 14 and 9. Always remember that Jesus' actions reflected the will of God in action. Well, what did Jesus do? He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. That means healing is good, don't it? Now, listen, this can be summed up in this text right here, Matthew seven eleven. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts, now we found out that healing is good, didn't we? Unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Now, before we study something else in Matthew, let's look at three questions that James asks. In James chapter 5, 13 through 15. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of, of faith shall save him that is sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, it shall be forgiven him. Now, if you'll notice, James is talking about three different things here. Is any suffering? Is any cheerful? Is any sick? Now, the Greek word translated suffering means to go through a test or trial or to be depressed or oppressed. The word suffering doesn't mean sick. And also notice that the individual who is suffering is to do his own praying. So here's what James is really saying. Is anyone being tested? Is anyone going through a trial? Let him pray. Now, if you'll notice, it doesn't say let him get somebody else to pray with him. No, James said let him pray. I, you know, another person is not going to be as concerned about your problem as you are. People today are looking for a quick fix. But God doesn't have any quick fixes. And that's the reason James asked, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Him who? The one that's suffering. And that means her too. And then James adds this, is any cheerful? Let him sing. 
Well, ain't it strange that when somebody is afflicted, that person usually wants you to do the praying for him. But when he's cheerful, he don't want you to sing for him. He wants you to do, he wants to do the singing himself, don't he? Well, many times they're looking for somebody else to do, to tell them what to do. But you can't be responsible for other people and you can't tell them what to do. If a person will just listen to the Bible, he'll know what to do. What if he doesn't know what the Bible says, you might ask? Well, then if he'll get along with God, the Holy Spirit will speak to his spirit. The Bible says in Proverbs 20 and 27, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. In other words, God's going to direct you through your spirit. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17 says this, And I, he talking about Jesus, will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Praise God forevermore. The Greek word translated comforter here in verse 16 is paraclete. And that's a word that has a sevenfold meaning. It means comforter, helper, counselor, advocate, intercessor, strengthener, and standby. Well, what more would you need, huh? That's why James said, is any suffering? Is any going through a test? Is any in trouble? Let him pray. Why? Because when you're in prayer, the Holy Spirit, who is your built-in counselor, will give you direction. Have you ever noticed how many times the Holy Spirit will take the word and open it up to you while you're praying? Jesus promised his disciples that the Holy Spirit would bring his words to the remembrance of those who believe in him. And whatever God said in his word, he said to us. It belongs to us too. And the Holy Spirit will bring God's word to our attention while we're praying. But he can't bring them to our attention if we ignore him and run to other people for help all the time. Don't misunderstand me. Others ought to help if they can. But if we do what the Bible says, it'll solve most of our problems. We'll get permanent help from the Lord. Well, what does the Bible say? It says, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Do you need comfort? There's a comforter on the inside of you. That's the Holy Spirit. Do you need help? The helper is inside of you. Do you need counsel? The counselor is inside of you. Do you need an advocate? One who pleads your case. The Holy Spirit is your advocate. Do you need an intercessor? He'll help you to intercede. Do you need strength and somebody to stand by you? He's your strengthener. He's your standby. That means he's just standing by in case you need him. He's there. He's everywhere. He, if you, I remember David talking about one time, if you could see the Holy Spirit, that's all you'd see because he's omnipresent. Now, let's go ahead and look at something else in James. James chapter 5, 14 through 16. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save him that is sick 
and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, it shall be forgiven him. Confess, therefore, your sins one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The supplication of a righteous man availeth much in its working. Now, verse 14 in the original Greek literally says this. Are any beyond doing anything for themselves? Let them call for the elders of the church. Now, there's a whole lot of directions we could go here, but the point I'm trying to make it is on verse 16. Pray one for another that you may be healed. So healing has to be a good thing, right? Because God wouldn't tell us to pray for something that wasn't good, would he? And if it's good, then healing has to be the will of God, especially for Christians. Would God tell you to pray for something that wasn't his will? That'd be stupid, wouldn't it? And I don't believe God's stupid, do you? Matthew chapter 7, verse 11 said, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more, and now some of you need to say that to yourself until you start shouting about how much more, okay? Shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? And from the standpoint of the fatherhood of God, Matthew 7 and 11 says that God will give good things to us. But God told us to ask for them. And he said, pray one for another. So healing belongs to us. Now say this outside. Healing belongs to me. God wants me well. And our heavenly father gives good things to them that ask him. Well, what's good? Well, we just read it in Acts 10, 38. Tell us that Jesus went about doing good and healing. So healing's good, right? Amen. Now, I want to ask you another question since we're talking about healing. Is sickness a good thing? And if it is, we ought to never want to get rid of it, right? We ought to want to keep it. But it's not a good thing to be sick and off work, to lose your job, to see your children go hungry, and to lose your vehicle and home. Now, if you don't believe me, just ask any of the homeless on on the street. They'd know better. So, is healing a good thing? Well, if you're hurting, I know it feels good when the hurting stops, don't it? Yeah, it's a good thing to be well and healthy, to be able to stay on the job and to provide for your family. Anyone would know that that's a good thing, even from the natural standpoint. So let's see what else the Bible says. In James chapter 1 and verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom can be no variation, neither shadow that is cast by turning. Well, a heavenly Father never changes. He doesn't vary in the least bit. And every good gift and every perfect gift Perfect gift is from above. And that means sickness and disease are not good gifts because sickness and disease don't come down from heaven. It would be impossible because there ain't no sickness or disease up there in heaven, is it? Now, in what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer, the disciples are told to pray, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 16 or 6 and 10. Now, if it's the will of God for his children to be sick on earth, then it has to be his will for them to be sick in heaven. 
And we've already learned that they can't be sick in heaven because the Bible says there ain't no sickness there. If we're told to pray, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, then we're told to pray that there not be any sickness on earth too. It's that simple, folks. If sickness can't come from heaven, then it could not be a good gift according to the biblical definition. And yet, you know, how many of you have ever heard ministers say, well, we don't know what's good for us. God does, and he sometimes puts sickness on people. I've heard him say that. God don't put sickness on people because he doesn't have any. You can't give someone something that you don't have. And if there's no sickness in heaven, where would God get it in order to put it on you? He'd have to steal it from a devil and God not a thief. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And this must mean that healing comes from heaven because Jesus came from heaven and he he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, it says in Matthew 8 and 17. So we need to start believing this today, right? And if you'll start doing this today, believing the word of God about healing, you'll see miracles in your life and you'll see miracles in your family too. Praise God forevermore. Now, I want to change gears here a minute. I want to relate something to you that I believe will bless your heart. And this is from uh, John G. Lake. Lake at one time had gone to college to be a, a doctor up until he found out that most of the diagnoses that they had, that doctors had, were guesses at best. And I want to go ahead and uh, relate this little story to you because I believe it will bless you. He says, when you and I are lost in the Son of God and the fires of Jesus burn in our hearts as they did in his, our words will be the words of spirit and of life. There will be no death in them. Beloved, we are on the way. Having formal acknowledgement as a student of science, it was my privilege to attend clinics which I frequently did, he said. At one time, I, must, I submitted myself to a series of experiments. It was not sufficient to know that God healed. I had to know how God healed. And I visited one of the great experimental institutions and submitted myself for a series of experiments. First, an instrument was attached to my head. This instrument had an indicator that would register the vibrations of the brain. I began to repeat things like the 23rd Psalm to soothe the mind and reduce its vibrations to the lowest point. Then I repeated the 31st Psalm, the 35th chapter of Isaiah, the 91st Psalm, and Paul's address book before Agrippa. And after this, I went into secular literature and recited Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade and finally posed the raven as I prayed in my heart that at the psychological moment, God would anoint my soul in the Holy Spirit. My difficulty was that while reciting, I couldn't keep the spirit from coming upon me. When I finished with the raven, those in charge of the experiment said, you are a phenomenon. 
you have a wider mental range than any human being we have ever seen. But in reality, this was not so. It was because the Spirit of God kept coming upon me to such a degree that I could feel the moving of the Spirit within me. And I prayed in my heart, Lord God, if you will only let the Spirit of God come like the lightnings of God upon my soul for two seconds, I know something is going to happen that these men have never seen before. And as I recited the last lines of the poem, suddenly the Spirit of God struck me in a burst of praise and tongues. The indicator on that instrument bounded to the limit, and I haven't the least idea how much further it would have gone if it had been possible. And the professor said, we have never seen anything like it. And I replied, gentlemen, it's the Holy Ghost. In the second experiment, a powerful x-ray machine with a microscopic attachment was connected to my head. The purpose was to see, if possible, what the action of the brain cells was. And I proceeded just in the former experiment. First, I repeated scriptures that were soothing those calculated to reduce the action of the cortex cells to their lowest possible register. Then I went to the scriptures, which conveyed better and richer things until I reached the first chapter of John. And as I began to recite this, the fires of God began to burn in my heart. And suddenly the Spirit of God came upon me as before, and the man who was standing behind me touched me. It was a signal to me to keep that pause of soul until one after another could look through the instrument. Finally, when I let go, the spirit subsided. The professor said, Why, man, we can't understand this, but the cortex cells expanded amazingly. I said to them, gentlemen, I want you to see one more thing. Go down in your hospital and bring back a man who has inflammation in the bone. Take your instrument and attach it to his leg. Leave enough space to get my hand on his leg. And you can attach it to both sides. And when the instrument was ready, I put my hand on the man's shin and prayed like Mother Etta prays. No strange prayer, but to cry of my heart to God. I said, God, kill the devilish disease by your power. Let the spirit move in him. Let it live in him. Then I asked, gentlemen, what's taking place? They replied, every cell is responding. It's so simple. The life of God comes back into the part that is afflicted. And immediately the blood flows, the closed congested cells respond, and the work is done. That's God's divine science. Oh, beloved, when you pray, something is happening in you. And it's not a myth. It is the action of God. The almighty God, by the Spirit, comes into your soul 
takes possession of your brain and manifests himself in the cortex cells of your brain. And when you wish and will, either consciously or unconsciously, the fire of God, the power of God, that life of God, that nature of God is transmitted from the cortex cells of your brain and throbs through your nerves, down through your person, into every cell of your being, into every cell of your brain, your blood, your flesh, and your bone, into every square inch of your skin, until you are alive with God. Folks, that is divine healing. Let me relate one more item of, of, of lakes here. I believe it'll bless you too. In 1912, I was pastor of the Apostolic Tabernacle in Johannesburg, South Africa. The ministry of healing through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was one of the cardinal teachings of our organization. The sick were brought from all parts of the land. Thousands were healed through the prayer of faith and the laying on of hands of those who believed. Our church was then enjoying a great period of spiritual blessing and power. Various remarkable manifestations of the spirit, of the spirit commonly occurred. At a Sunday service, before public prayer was offered, a member of the congregation arose and requested that the audience join in prayer on behalf of a cousin in Wales, 7,000 miles across the sea from Johannesburg that she might be healed. And he stated that the woman was violently insane and the inmate of an asylum in Wales. I knelt on the platform to pray. An unusual degree of the spirit of prayer came upon my soul, causing me to pray with fervor and power. The spirit of prayer fell on the audience at the same time. The people ordinarily sat in their seats and bowed their heads while prayer was being offered. On this occasion, some hundred or more in different parts of the house knelt to pray with me. I was uttering the audible prayer. They were praying silently. A great consciousness of the presence of God took possession of me. My spirit rose in a great consciousness of spiritual dominion. I felt for the moment as though I were anointed to cast out demons. My inner or spiritual eyes were open. I could see in the spirit and observe that there was a shaft of seeming light accompanied by moving power coming from many of those who were praying. As the prayer continued, these shafts of light increased in number. Each of them reached my own soul. Each brought an increasing impulse of spiritual power until I seemed nigh overcome by it. While this was going on, I was uttering the words of prayer with great force and consciousness of spiritual power. Presently, I seemed out of the body and to my surprise observed that I was rapidly passing over the city of Kimberley, 300 miles from Johannesburg. The next consciousness was the city of Cape Town on the seacoast, 1,000 miles away. The next consciousness was the island of St. Helena, Helena, where Napoleon was banished. 
Then the Cape Verde Lighthouse on the coast of Spain came into view. By this time, it seemed as if I was passing through an atmosphere observing everything but moving with great lightning-like rapidity. I remember the passage along the coast of France, across the Bay of Biscay, then into Wales. I had never been in Wales. It was a new country to me. And as I passed swiftly over the country, I said, these are like the hills of Wyoming along the North Dakota border. Presently, a village appeared, nestled in a deep valley among the hills. Next, a public building that I recognized instinctively as the asylum. On the door, I observed an old-fashioned 16th century knocker. Its workmanship attracted my attention, and this thought flashed through my spirit. That undoubtedly was made by one of the old smiths who manufactured armor. I was inside the institution without waiting for the doors to open, and present at the side of a cot on which lay a woman. Her wrists were strapped to the sides of the cot, also her ankles. Another strap passed over her legs above the knees, and a second over her breasts. These were to hold her down. She was wagging her head and muttering incoherently. I laid my hands upon her head and with great intensity commanded in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that the demon spirit possessing her be cast out and that she might be healed by the power of God. And in a moment or two, I observed a change coming over her countenance. It softened and a look of intelligence appeared. Presently, her eyes opened and she smiled up in my face and I knew she was healed. I had no consciousness of return whatsoever. Instantly, I was aware that I was still kneeling in prayer and was conscious of all the surrounding environment of my church and service. Three weeks passed when my friend who had presented the request for prayer came to me with a letter from one of his relatives stating that an unusual thing had occurred. Their cousin, who had been confined for seven years in an asylum in Wales, suddenly became well. They had no explanation to offer. Their doctor said it was one of those unaccountable things that sometimes happened. She was perfectly well and had returned to her friends. Praise God. Listen, folks, the life of the Christian without the indwelling power of the spirit in the heart is awareness to the flesh. It is an obedience to commandments and an endeavor to walk according to a pattern which you have no power to follow. The Christian life that is lived by the impulse of the Spirit of Christ within your soul becomes a joy, a power, and a glory. That's what Lake said. I believe it. I believe the power of God is within everybody that's listening to me. And all we have to do is believe it. And have faith to believe that when we pray for the sick, they will be healed. When we pray for the lake continues to say the Christian, the child of God, the Christ man who has committed his body as well as his soul to God ought not to be a subject for healing. He should be a subject of continuous abiding health because he or she is filled with the life of God. Christ is at once, this is tongues and interpretation, 
Christ is at once the spotless descent of God into man and the sinless ascent of man into God. And the Holy Spirit is the agent by whom this is accomplished. Praise God. Yeah, I believe that. Glory to God. If you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, bless God, go ahead and, and ask God to to baptize you and fill you with the Holy Spirit. He said, all you have to do is ask and he'll give it to you. Well, praise God. I'm out of time. God bless you and we'll see you next time. God willing. For information, materials, and to contribute, go to unleavenedbreadministries.org. Contributions only may be addressed to David Eels, Post Office Box 231616, Montgomery, Alabama, 36123. Jesus